Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6, and you'll find this on page 571 of the Church Bible. If you can reach for a large print one and need it, then it's on page 678. Um, Until about... Uh, the end of the 4th century, when people read, they didn't read, as I was taught in primary school, into themselves. They, they read out loud. And the Bible was written to be read out loud because other people didn't have Bibles. Um, actually, there's a famous incident in Augustine's Confessions where he goes to visit Bishop Ambrose in Milan and he's astonished that Bishop Ambrose is reading and his lips are moving but he's not making any sound. So at least until the end of the 4th century this was a phenomenon. Um, So I'm going to ask you today if you uh, would like to, to read part of this passage with me. The second half of Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to read the whole chapter. Christians have always loved the first half of the chapter and rarely visited the second half, Um, but it's a very weighty section, and perhaps by reading it together, we'll get a sense of that weight. So if you would like to join in at verse 8, when I read, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, then please do that. Incidentally, I asked the boss's permission. So he said, you've done this before. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, 
until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felt. The holy seed is its stump. Last Sunday when we started looking at this passage, I mentioned an ancient spiritual discipline uh, which always went by the name of improving your circumstances or improving God's providences. It didn't mean making them better, but making them useful. And by and large, I think it's a relatively forgotten spiritual art. Although, if you're a parent, you have probably exercised it with your children. You're on your way home from church after church, hoping that the oven is actually on. And you say to the children in the back seat with the pet, What did you learn at Sunday school today? And you engage in a kind of catechetical exercise. You discover, were they listening? Were they naughty? What did they take in? What was the lesson? Was the teacher any good? And what you're doing is you're improving, not making it better, but you're improving. You're testing the reliability of what they have learned. And it's one of those idiosyncrasies of growing up that when you grow up, you begin to realize you've expected a higher standard of sanctification from your children than you're actually exercising in your own life. Because we so often fail to improve what God gives to us. And I was suggesting last week in the particular providences of our time with the death of Queen Elizabeth, uh, in a sense, God is calling us to improve the times in which we live, to, to have his impress on how we respond. Um, in a sense, we have three Sundays here, like one of those medieval altarpieces with three panels. And David brought us so wonderfully to learn a couple of Sundays ago what lamentation means. And we saw last Lord's Day, before the funeral service, what the vision of God means. And now in this second half of Isaiah chapter 6, what God's commission means. What God's commission meant to the prophet Isaiah. How God himself, quotes, improved the circumstances mentioned in verse 1 of King Isaiah's death. I think he was the second longest reigning monarch, not quite uh, Queen Elizabeth, but as I mentioned last time, as one of the older commentators says, had a glorious reign, but with a very sad period of years at the end. And it's interesting to me anyway, that so much is happening in the first half of this chapter, in verses 1 through 7, that there's something we, we almost don't notice. And it's this, that 
the seraphim have spoken, exalting the holiness of God. Isaiah has spoken, speaking about the sinfulness of the times in which he lives and his own new consciousness of sinfulness as he sees this vision of the glory and holiness of God. But so far God himself has said absolutely nothing. But now God begins to speak. In the first half the Lord has manifested himself and it's only in the second half that God begins to speak. And it's pretty clear that what is going on here actually is that in the experience of the glory and holiness of God, the Lord has actually been preparing Isaiah for the word that he is now going to speak to him. And I want us to think about this. In a way, this chapter is like a, a symphony with four movements. The first movement is a, is a movement in which Isaiah experiences cleansing. But then in verse 8, he experiences God's calling. And in verses 8 to 11, we see him responding. And then in verses 9 through 13, we see his commissioning. So, Isaiah's calling, Isaiah's responding, Isaiah's commissioning. First of all, in verse 8, we hear the voice of the Lord. Um, you know, if you ever get into trouble with the nominative and accusative in sentences, this is a great sentence to memorize, where God says, Whom? shall I send, and who will go for us? But it's a very striking call, isn't it? There are no names mentioned. Another striking thing about it is, there's no content given to the call. It just seems to be a call that is issued from the throne of God in heaven, where in the council of glory... This is a throne room scene, several of which appear in the Bible, in which God simply seems to be saying, and Isaiah is overhearing this voice that says, Whom shall I send? No name mentioned. And who will go for us? No message mentioned. I suggested last week that although Christians are certainly not agreed about this, and one can't be dogmatic about it. But it seems to me that rather than being Isaiah's original call to be a prophet, this is something that happens to him when he already is a prophet. Uh, John Calvin, great biblical commentator, makes a very interesting suggestion. He says, maybe he forgot. And that seems almost like a naive thing to say, until you realize what he'd just experienced. Um, I remember an incident in my own life. I was 25. I'd been on a mission for two weeks. I was preaching as a guest in another church. Uh, friends hosted me, an elderly couple, for lunch. They said to me, after lunch, we usually lie down after lunch on Sunday, and invited me to stretch out on their very comfortable couch. And I vividly remember, over all these years, I woke up and for several seconds, I mean, I guess I was just so dog-tired. 
I couldn't remember who I was or where I was. I just had this sense hovering over me, Ferguson, you'd, you'd better clarify your mind because there is something important you have got to do in an hour and a half's time because I was preaching in the evening. But for those few seconds, a kind of amnesia caused in this instance, I hope, by tiredness. Nowadays it might be caused by something else. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch of the imagination to think that when you've been overwhelmed by this sense of the presence of God, the fact that you've had a position in the church, not something you really remember. And therefore what seems to be happening here is that God is working in Isaiah's life because Isaiah's service is being brought to a new stage. And that's actually fairly characteristic of what happens in Scripture, in the biographies we have, happens frequently in the experience of Christians in history. One can see that it happened in the case of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, the Apostle Peter, and one can also see it happened in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was 30 years old, and something new happened to him. There was a divine revelation from heaven, and a voice spoke to him, and the Holy Spirit came upon him. Had he not heard God speak before? Yes. Had he not lived in the grace of the Holy Spirit before? Yes, perfectly, with perfect righteousness as we were singing. But he was now entering into a new stage in his ministry. God was doing something new in his life. This isn't something you calculate. It's not something you can arrange. It's not something you systematize. It's certainly not something anyone should say, God did this in my life and he needs to do it in your life too. But in Isaiah's case, this is what happened. And in his case, of course, it happens on the large scale. In our case, um, it happens sometimes when we seriously notice what's happening. But God speaks. He brings us to a new stage of our own personal history. There are new providences in our lives. And he is preparing us for the reception of fresh resources from his spirit. And a fresh consecration to his will. And it's a marvelous thing that he does this. That the life of faith is not simply a straight line graph from the moment you become a Christian to the moment you enter glory. But it's like growing up. It's punctuated by these moments, sometimes of rapid development and of new challenges. And although certainly Isaiah has been speaking about the, the waywardness of the people that there is a new stage in what God is about to say to him here. So in verse 8, we overhear the voice of the Lord. And in two stages, in verse 8b and in verse 11a, we read about the response of the prophet. 
And it is, I think, interestingly, in two stages. Stage one, in verse eight, at the end, I said, here I am, send me. And then you notice a somewhat different response in verse 11. Then I said, how long, Lord? So there's a kind of eagerness in verse 8. And in verse 11, there's a kind of, what on earth have I let myself in for? How long is this going to last? Now, I'm tempted to say somewhat tongue-in-cheek that if I was Isaiah and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, you know, uh, uh, who, who will go for us? Who am, I going, who, who am I going to send? Who will go for us? I, I think I might have said, one of these two. <laughs> one of these two. And God could do that. Just as easily as God said there are legions of angels committed to my son Jesus, and at a moment's notice they will come to his rescue. But that is not the plan. The plan is for Isaiah to be the minister of God's word to God's people as one of them. And so he responds, here am I, send me. Now again, when you read through scripture, you you can't legislate how people are going to respond to God's call. It's clear people respond at different speeds. We respond too, don't we, with, at different levels of naivety. Um, we're like children. Like my children, one of them, if we, if we went to the beach, one of them would just run down the shore straight into the water and say it's fantastic and the other would walk down to the edge put his foot in, shiver and then decide that it was more interesting to do something else we, we, we even respond to God's call in different ways and that's true of Isaiah but what is really important with respect to God's call is that eventually God leads us to the place where we yield to him with no reservations and with no qualifications. And that's what Isaiah does here. There is no mention here of what the plan is, what the future is. The issue here for Isaiah is consecration to the Lord without reservation, without qualification. Reminded of a passage in uh, one of George MacDonald's fairy stories. Um, if you know C.S. Lewis, you've read George MacDonald. C.S. Lewis says he never wrote a book without citing George MacDonald, whether he says George MacDonald says this or not. And he was born in Huntley, I think, 30 miles away. And here's this marvelous uh, fairy story called The Key. The little boy finds a key, but he doesn't know what the key opens. And so he goes on a journey. And eventually on the journey, he meets the old man of the earth. And he's asking for directions. And this is what MacDonald describes. Then the old man of the earth stooped over the floor of the cave, raised its huge stone from it, and left it leaning it disclosed a great hole that went plumb down. That is the way, he said. 
And the little fellow, whose name is Mossy, said, But there are no stairs. And the old man of the earth says, You must throw yourself in. There is no other way. It's like that. But it's, it's not a jump into the dark. It's a, it's a jump into the arms of God who is calling Isaiah and therefore will sustain him. But here's an interesting thing. Our consecration to the Lord is a consecration in which we are called to be decisive. But at the same time, that call of the Lord is progressive. Now me, I'd rather it was just decisive and been there, done that. And there is something in many Christians that wants an experience that will get it all over. And there'll be no more challenges, no more difficulties. The decision will be made. But it's interesting here, isn't it, that Isaiah's consecration is not only decisive, but it's also progressive because he now hears the commission. And the commission is overwhelming. The commission is to go and basically tell people, you're not listening and you won't listen. And one of the reasons you won't listen is because I'm preaching to you. And his whole future now is to be a day by day, week by week, commitment to the call that God has given to him. And the only thing, it seems to me, that secures Isaiah for the rest of his ministry is this consciousness that God has called him and he knows what he's for. Whatever else is going on around him, he knows he is for the Lord. Remember how Paul puts it when he's a prisoner, conscious that God has called him. In Ephesians 3.1 he says, I'm, I'm writing to you, not as a prisoner of Rome, but a prisoner for Jesus Christ. And that is how Isaiah is responding He's responding in a way that makes it clear that whatever he is going to be for the Lord. And that's what sustains him. And that's what sustains us. We may not know the details. I mean, it's very unlikely that any of us who is under 25 is going to be doing exactly the same thing until uh, we ever, if we ever do, draw our retirement pension. We, we don't know the future. But what sustains us for the future through thick and thin is this assurance that the Lord has called us to himself. He's called us to serve him. And we're willing to do that without reservation and without qualification and we know he's going to lead us on a great journey so there's the call of the Lord there's the response of the prophet Lord how long is this going to go on 
And that's caused by the message that he's given for the people in verses 9 to 13. And as I hinted, these are among the most perplexing words in the Bible. If you take them at face value, they are among the most perplexing words on the Bible. Say to this people, keep on hearing, it's a command. It's not just you're going to keep on hearing, it's a command. Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Isaiah, make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes. And it would be easy to say, well, that's the Old Testament. Except these are the words that are used in our Lord Jesus' teaching about why he teaches in parables. These are words used by the Apostle Paul about what he sees as the fruit of his ministry. So how can this be? Well, let me give you one or two clues. The first is this, that this is a word of judgment. This is not an isolated word that God has decreed and decided without respect to the condition of the people. first five chapters of Isaiah are full of their rebellion against the Lord. Second clue, and I think this is an important clue, is that the people's rebellion against the Lord has taken a very specific form. And Isaiah has already referred to it. He will refer to it again. And that specific form is that they have turned from the Lord to idols. Um, He's spoken about that in chapter 2. You remember his amazing description of it later on in chapter 44 when he says, you know, you, you take a piece of wood, you cut it into two, you make a fire with half of it, you create an idol with the other half and you worship and you bow down and you choose the idol rather than choosing the Lord. A friend by the name of Greg Beale, some of you will Maybe know his commentary on Revelation, which takes a new SUV to get back from the bookshop. It's so big. Here's a marvelous book entitled, We Become What We Worship, which is actually based on the words of Psalm 135. Psalm 135, verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands, they have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Notice the echo in Isaiah 6. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You see the point? What Isaiah is to preach is, then become like what you worship. And if you know that passage in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, you'd be very struck by the parallels where Paul describes people who have rejected the manifestation of God's glory in creation. And it's interesting, that's one of the things that the seraphim spoke about. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 1. He says the whole world is luminous 
with the characteristics, the attributes, the majesty, the deity of God. But when we turn away from that to idolatry, we become like what we worship. And you'll know that one of the chief characteristics of idolatry throughout history, but not least in Scripture, is that idolatry is characteristically associated with legitimating sexual activity that is forbidden by God. These two things characteristically go together. Um, I suppose we could try and explore why it, it is just a fact in Scripture. And don't you think it's a fact today that the turning away from God to our contemporary idolatry, our worship of created things, which for many people they will say it's all that we have. It's not incidental that it's associated with the so-called sexual revolution of the last 50 or 60 years. Because that's the way in which idolatry manifests itself. That once you have rejected the God in whose image you are made, then your understanding of that image is going to disintegrate. It's going to become distorted. So, in many ways, we're in Isaiah's work, aren't we? We're in his time. You remember how, how Paul goes on to say this? So what's, what's the consequence of this? What does God do? Well, what do we hear? We hear, look what we're doing. You Christians, you Bible people, you said that, that God would judge this. And we are doing it to our heart's content. But what Romans 1, 18 to 32 says, that's God's judgment. If that's what you want, then you can have it. Three times in Romans 1, 24, 26, 28, I think. So God gave them over. It's like C.S. Lewis says somewhere. I always say C.S. Lewis says somewhere because most people have not read all these writings. So the most terrible words anyone will ever hear are the words, then your will be done. And that's Isaiah's message. And I think it's not surprising then that his instinct is to cry out, Oh God, I've seen your glory. I see, I see why this is the message. But Lord, how long is this going to go on? And the visible church is going to crumble. That's the message. He said, verse 11, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant. Houses without people, the land is a desolate waste. The Lord removes people far away. The forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And even though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. It's like decimation after decimation after decimation. No wonder he's crying out, Lord, please reverse this, stop this. How long? I can't bear this. And we can see parallels in our own time. Happened just 
somehow or another to come across an article uh, the other day where a sociologist had tracked the demise of the Church of Scotland and worked out the statistics now. You know, there are lies and there are statistics, and I know all that. But his prognostication was that the Church of Scotland will have ceased to exist by the year 2045 or 2046. And if you doubted that statistic, when I was a little boy, think of the membership of the National Church and the membership now, it's about 20%. But if you examine the number of children who were associated with the church, who were not counted in that 1.5 million or whatever it was, a huge percentage of the population. Now, almost nobody. I mean, if you, if you have just come to university and you're 17 or 18 or 19 or 25, what this academic is saying, you see a lot of old Church of Scotland buildings in Aberdeen, you will see a lot more. Now, of course, that will not be absolutely the case. But there's 80% less people in the Church of Scotland today than there were when I was a child. And my guess is that's true of many other denominations. That's the world. That's Isaiah's world. That, in a sense, is, and it's happened, it's happened during the previous reign. That's, that, I think, is why listening to this experience of Isaiah's, we're able to improve our present providences. Um, because there's this tiny glimmer of hope at the end in verse 13. Though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. And then these words, the holy seed is its stump. Now often in Isaiah, the seed is the faithful people of God. But you also know that right the way throughout Scripture, there's this kind of ambiguity about the seed. The seed is corporate, the faithful people of God. But the seed is also individual. Genesis 3.15 The seed of the woman will conflict with the serpent and crush the serpent's head even as his heel is crushed. The seed that is promised to Abraham in which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The seed that Paul speaks about in Galatians 3. This seed is one seed. This seed is Jesus Christ. And it's so interesting from this point onwards in Isaiah, the rest of the prophecy is punctuated by these references, these future visions of the one who will come. It's, it's in the next chapter that we read at Christmas time. It's three chapters later on that we read at Christmas time. 
about the wonderful counsel, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, whose kingdom will have no end. And then perhaps most wonderfully, it's at the beginning of chapter 11, the words that Jesus read in the synagogue and said they were fulfilled in him. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's just a wonderful illustration that although Isaiah was looking at a, at a poor negative of a picture, he saw the promise of the seed who would bring salvation, not just to his own people, but who would bring salvation to the nations of the earth. And in between the reality of his call, the wonder of his consecration, and the challenge of his mission, he knew that the mission of God would never fail, because Christ would come. And for us, Christ has come. For us, the seed has given birth to millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of Christians. Today, the seed is giving birth in other parts of the world to millions of Christians. And we can be sure, even although we live in this period of decimation after decimation, that the seed that is in the stump will again give birth to many believers. And as we see that crumbling around about us, uh, we need to hear what God is saying to Isaiah. Make sure you keep your eye fixed on the stump. It strikes me as we see what happens around about us. What if this church, other churches like this church, that are actually growing rather than diminishing, what if this is the stump in which the seed of real faith in Jesus Christ is preserved that will give birth to God's mercy in the future? So we have an individual reason to be consecrated without reservation, without qualification to the Lord, whatever he calls us to do. Yes, there will be moments when we will say, Lord, I just cannot do this. I can't go on doing this. And we need to keep our eyes fixed on the promise. And we have even more reason to keep our eyes fixed on the promise because of its fulfillment in our Savior Jesus Christ. We know so much more. We have seen so much more than the prophet Isaiah. And therefore we have this responsibility, don't we? To improve the providences. I wonder if you're like I think many people are. Kind of stunned a couple of weeks ago. And slowly anticipating the events of Monday. And then... Back to normal. And the danger is that we don't improve the times in which we live. And the privilege is that as we respond like the prophet Isaiah, we can improve God's providences in our lives in ways that will make our lives fruitful.
Make our church fruitful. Make the kingdom fruitful. So, by God's grace, let's say to him, Lord, I don't know what this means fully, but here I am. Send me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you again for the way in which these amazing moments draw us into your presence. Uh, We know we don't experience exactly what Isaiah experienced, but through your word we are brought into your throne room. We hear your voice beyond any human voice. And whatever it is you are calling each of us to, we, we do want to say, Lord, here I am. Send me. Help us then. In Jesus' name. Amen.